Well, first of all, I love what was said about uh, the, uh, the lyrics there, the immortal, invisible. One of our favorite songs at our house is the, the, the lyrics are, he, he's not in the limelight, he is the limelight, right? So let's, uh, let's pray. Lord, we have come together again to seek you. And we pray that you would just have mercy on us. We're foolish sinners. We are prone to wander from you, to go astray. And we pray that you would just not let us go. We pray that you would guard every word spoken. That your truth would be received with ears ready to hear and anything other than your truth would be discarded and forgotten immediately and forever. We come to you in the name of our great advocate, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to continue in Exodus 34 from last week. And before we get there, I want to give you a couple of words that I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, but maybe some of you aren't. It's indicatives and imperatives. So if you've studied the book of Ephesians, you know that it has six chapters. The first three chapters are indicatives, and the last three chapters are imperatives. Well, what do those mean if you don't already know? Indicatives, you can think of as right thinking. These are truths you should be aware of. And the imperatives are, in light of these truths, in light of this right thinking, this then is how you should live. So in a sense, last week we had the indicatives, and this week we'll talk about the imperatives. And we'll get to that as we move forward. So last week we moved up the mountain with Moses, and we heard God declare some things about himself. God is merciful, gracious, patient, loving, and faithful. God forgives iniquity and sin, but God will also punish the guilty which implies at least that God is holy and God is just and God has wrath against sin and condemned sinners. And we kind of focused on that one last week. We talked about the fact that if God really is these things and God really is these things, then the only way these things can be reconciled, if, the only way that he can be merciful and just and he can be gracious and he will punish the guilty, and if he is unchanging and if he is perfectly unified, then the only way we can re- reconcile all of that is at the cross. To change who God is is to change what the gospel is. Pastor Vody Bauckham said, You cannot change the nature of the rescuer without changing the nature of the rescue itself. So if we succumb to the temptation to change in our own imaginations who God is, then we have already begun to change what the gospel is. We've already begun to preach another gospel to ourselves. And the Bible has no comfort for people who preach another gospel a different gospel. The Bible says if anybody does that, no matter who it is, they are to be accursed. 
So we dare not stray from holding fast to who God is, and we dare not stray from holding fast to all of who God is. Even those attributes that maybe make us a little uncomfortable. So the plan today is to go back to Exodus 34. We'll read verses 5 through 9 here in just a minute, but we're going to spend most of our time, we're really going to camp out on verses 8 and 9. So let's look at the text, Exodus 34, and I'll start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people." And pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So we are going to spend most of our time in verses 8 and 9 today. That's really where we're going to camp out. But there's a couple of curious statements there in verse 7, which I probably should have covered last week, but better late than never. So here we are. In verse 7, God says, He is keeping steadfast love for thousands. Now, if you're reading from an English Standard Version Bible, there should be a little footnote right there. If you have an NASB or an NIV or something else, you probably don't. But in the ESV, there's a little footnote there right after the word thousands. And by the way, if, when you're, you're studying the Bible, I would always read the footnotes. You'll be surprised if you don't how helpful those are. It may be something really practical, like what time of day it is or what the unit of measure is. But a lot of times you'll see references to the Old Testament. And sometimes you get a little bit of an explanation. What am I reading? What does this mean? So always read the footnotes. But in this footnote, at least in the ESV, it says, to the thousandth generation. And I think They put that there because of the context. So we have already, in God's description of himself, what appears to be a bit of a contrast, right? He's going to forgive iniquity, and he's going to punish the guilty. And then he has two statements about generations of people, and in that there also seems to be a bit of a contrast. And if we read that to the thousandth generation, I think it makes more sense. So God is keeping steadfast love to the thousandth generation. And what else? He's visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, the first thing we need to note is he's loving a thousand generations. He's visiting iniquity on the third and fourth generation. Right there, we see something about the nature and character of God. But why does God say this? Why is it in here? Well, we need to acknowledge, first of all, that this was not an essay assignment given to God, and this is filler material, right? He didn't have to have so many words, and so he just stuck it in here. It's in here for a reason. We're going to have to deal with that. So we run across things in the Bible sometimes, 
And sometimes we just have to say, I don't know. I don't, I don't understand this. And that's okay. But what we can't do is say, it's meaningless. There was no point to it being in here. That is a no-go, right? It's in here for some reason. He put these statements in here for some reason. And we also know it's in here so it's true. Every word of scripture is God-breathed. It's true. So let's try to deal with it. And as we deal with it, we're going to get into a little bit of perilous waters. I'm going to step carefully. But let's proceed cautiously here. God, I believe, is speaking to the natural, not the inevitable, but the natural course of things, the natural order of things. Blessings and curses do, then and today, tend to, in a general sense, be passed down from generation to generation. Now, as I said, we could go too far with this, right? We're, we're driving down the road and there's steep ditches on either side. So we'll, we'll talk about those in a minute. But if you grew up in a house with parents who loved Jesus, with parents who preached the gospel to you, with parents who just crammed into you Bible and doctrine and Bible and doctrine, and when it looked like you just couldn't handle anymore, kept cramming it in there, who sort of stacked the kindling in the wood and poured oil over it and cried out to God that one day he would ignite that fire, isn't that a blessing? That's a blessing. And oftentimes we see that those kids grow up to do the same for their kids, right? Now, we could take this too far. We could sort of fall into something called determinism. We could start to believe that that sweet little baby you brought home from the hospital is this blank slate and will one day be made up of only what you allowed in there and what you kept out. We could easily forget that that sweet little baby wasn't born spiritually neutral. That sweet little baby was born spiritually ruined and in need of a savior. So the natural order of things in general is that some of those blessings do tend to be passed down from generation to generation. Now the opposite is also true. The natural order of things is that the curse of iniquity oftentimes is passed down from fathers to sons and mothers to daughters. You have the man who's just given over to drunkenness. And if we looked into his family history, oftentimes we'll find that his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather were plagued by this particular sin. We, find, we, we have the woman who's staying with a man who's abusive. And if we looked into her history, oftentimes we'll find that she grew up in a house with a mother and a grandmother and a great-grandmother, and they all had that same curse. Now here's some ditches we don't want to fall into because these are general truths. These are generalities. One would be, well, it's inevitable. My dad had this problem, so I'll just pursue my sin. 
Nobody gets to blame daddy for their own sin. That's no excuse. But here's, here's the one that really sort of haunts me a little bit. It would be easy to say, and listen to me, it would be easy to say that maybe I do come from a household and it was not all good. Maybe it was awful. And now I have kids of my own. It would be easy to sort of abandon all hope and just say, well, that's it. These kids are doomed because it was the same way with my father and my grandfather and my great-grandfather, and that's it. And I'm here to tell you that that's not true. That's not true. Where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, right? The Spirit of God can heal and restore the deepest of wounds. So don't give up hope. Is there, in some sense, some truth to these things being passed from father to son and mother to daughter? Yes. Is it inevitable? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. So God declares these things about himself. He's merciful, gracious, patient, faithful. He forgives and he punishes. How does Moses respond? Verse 8, let's look at it together. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. Moses worships. And there's some things worth noting about how he worships. Listen to how A.W. Pink describes it. He says, It is blessed to note the effect upon Moses of the wondrous and glorious communication which he had just received from the mouth of Jehovah. Filled with adoration and awe, he takes his place in the dust before him. No formal or perfunctory homage was it that Moses now rendered. The words made haste seem to point to the spontaneity of his worship. The bowing of his head toward the earth shows how deeply his spirit was stirred. Now, I really like that phrase, filled with adoration and awe. He takes his place, not beside him, in the dust before him. Now, this is, we should note, the exact opposite of what the Pharisees did. The Pharisees had no affection for God. In John chapter 5, verse 42, this is what Jesus tells the Pharisees, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. And the Pharisees are in the Bible as a warning to us, right? They were very religious people. They were more religious than anybody in this room. They were good at religion. But their religion was obligatory and ritualistic and absent any affection for the Father. And the warning to us is that obligatory, ritualistic religion is the road to hell. It might as well be witchcraft. It's spell casting. If I do these things on this list very carefully, and I always avoid these things on this list all the time, then I have successfully cast the eternal salvation spell. And we need to understand how God feels about that sort of thing. And we get a pretty good description of it in Isaiah chapter 1. In verses 10 through 15, this is God's response to that sort of empty religious practice. This is what he says. 
Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. God's not interested in affectionless worship. So the question is not, do you go to church every Sunday? Are you putting this amount in the plate when it passes by? Do you read your Bible every day and how many verses is it? That's not the first question. The first question is, do you love Jesus? Do you want more of him? Do you need him like you needed that breath you just took? Because Moses loves God. Moses wants more of God. Moses needs God. And when God passes before him and declares these things about himself, Moses cannot help himself. He cannot help but to throw himself down in the dust in reverent, submissive worship. So we need to acknowledge some things about ourselves. First of all, everyone in this room, you are the crowning glory of God's creation. Unlike anything else on this earth, you were made in the image of God. You have a soul that will last forever. But, men, you came from a clod of mud that God breathed life into. Women, you came from the rib of a guy who came from a clod of mud that God breathed life into. And we live in a culture that absolutely hates, absolutely hates the idea of reverent, submissive worship of a God who is bigger than us. We live in a culture that wants to reject that reality and substitute its own of its own making. Remember moralistic therapeutic deism. Talked about that last week. If you believe that, then God leaves me alone. Because I'm the center of the universe, and my happiness is what is preeminent. And you know, if I get into a bad spot, if I get into a bit of trouble, then I'll give God permission to sort of swoop in and rescue me from probably the consequences of my own foolishness. But then as soon as the rescue is effective... He needs to beat it so I can get back to pursuing my own happiness and feeling good about myself. That is not reverent, submissive worship. 
You know how God describes the nature of our relationship with him? In Romans, in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's talking about some other doctrinal things we're not going to get into, but Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so this is God's words, this is what God is communicating to us. God says that the nature of our relationship with him is like this. God is the potter, and we are not the assistant potter. We are not the journeyman potter. We are not the the potter's unpaid intern to go get coffee. No, God is the potter, and we are the clay. That's how God sees the nature of our relationship. You're made in his image. You're the crowning glory of his creation. He's the potter. We're the clay. And we need to recognize that we live in a comfortable place. Nobody's going to come in and take us to jail because we're here, right? It's comfortable. But it's dangerous. We live in a spiritually dangerous place. Because we live in a place where the overwhelming culture, the, the loudest voices in the culture, hate who God is. They hate the idea that he's bigger than us. They absolutely hate the fact that he's the potter and we're the clay. We live in a place, in a culture that evangelistically proclaims its own moral superiority over the dreaded God of the Bible. And it also challenges anybody to dare to disagree with that. In his 2014 article, The Embarrassment of Noah, Ronald A. Lindsay says this, quote, It is also undoubtedly true that the Noah story, with its accompanying values, is a cornerstone of faith for millions of people worldwide. The problem is these values are morally repugnant. Let's not mince words. If the story of the flood is to be believed, God is a moral monster. So, you know, I stood up here and I called you clay. I'm I'm not trying to bum you out, okay? But I am trying to destroy any notion, any little seedling that could be sprouting anywhere in this room, that Jesus is in orbit around you or me. If Jesus is in orbit around us, then his actions need to be reconciled with our sense of justice and right and wrong. And he better get it right. And this is the world that we live in. We shouldn't be surprised by Mr. Lindsay. Here's the slippery slope. This is where it gets really dangerous. You are already on your way toward God is a moral monster. As soon as you're willing to discount parts of the Bible, those parts that you just kind of don't like. Let me tell you about a a man named Marcion. Marcion was a heretic. We'll get to that. Marcion was born in the year 85 AD. He was born in modern-day Turkey. At some point, he makes his way to Rome. And the church there in Rome 
accepts him as a fellow believer somewhere around the year 180, I'm sorry, 137. And Marcion gives a gift to the church. It's a big gift. It was the equivalent of 100 years wages. By the year 144, they had excommunicated him. They had kicked him out of the church, him and his gift. They gave it back. What in the world happened? What was the problem with Marcion? Well, the problem with Marcion is something that we today call Marcionism. And that is the belief that there is no way in the world that the God of the Old Testament, a God of wrath and justice, could possibly ever be the father of Jesus. And he's taught people that, and it was really popular. People loved that. Then and now. Reverent, submissive worship as opposed to obligatory, ritualistic religion. Adoration and holy awe, as opposed to self-righteous judgment of your maker. Verse 9, And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord. Again, this is Moses acknowledging who God is. This is Moses acknowledging the divine accommodation and condescension of God. What does that mean? The infinitely glorious God has communicated himself in a way that Moses, first of all, can perceive and understand, and secondly, that doesn't cause Moses to die immediately. He condescended himself in such a way that he could be perceived and it didn't kill Moses right there, right now. In just the previous chapter in Exodus thirty-three twenty, God says, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. That is God showing favor to Moses. Theologian Matthew Henry describes it this way, his humble reverence and adoration of God's glory, giving him the honor due to that name he had thus proclaimed. Even the goodness of God must be looked upon us with a profound veneration and holy awe. Let's keep going in verse 9. He continues, Please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance. So Moses was quick to worship. He has worshipped. And now Moses makes three pleas to God. Three pleas. He makes a plea of communion with God. A plea of the forgiveness of God. And a plea of adoption by God. Communion with God. For the forgiveness of God and adoption by God. Let's go through these together. A plea of communion with God. Let's understand, Moses is not simply asking for the presence of God. Communion with God includes the presence of God, but it's not that simple. It's not just the presence of God. It's more specific. Sodom and Gomorrah got the presence of God. Genesis 18, 20, and 21. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. 
So let's acknowledge a couple things. God is everywhere, all the time. God God doesn't have to go anywhere. God knows all things. He doesn't have to find out. Nothing occurs to God. This is God explaining himself in such a way so that we can understand it. This is the condescension of God again, right? That's what this is. He's giving us language so we can grasp what's going on. There was a great outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah. And part of that outcry, I'm sure, was that God would come to those cities. And God did. Sodom and Gomorrah got the presence of God. And Moses is not on the mountain asking for that kind of presence of God for Israel. He's asking for something a little more specific. He's asking for communion with God. Communion means God comes to us in love and we respond in joy. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. That's communion with God. And we should notice that Moses does not make an appeal based on the righteousness or the virtue of Israel down there. The idea of communion with God could and and maybe should give us a moment of pause. How can God come to me after I've done what I've done? You all don't know everything that I've done, but I know what I've done. And I don't know everything that you've done, but you know what you've done. How in the world can God come to us and have communion with us? Well, that brings us to the next plea. A plea for the forgiveness of God. When confronted with the reality of our sin, it is appropriate to be grieved by it. Brokenness is the proper response to sin. King David, great man, he's a king. He's also a voyeur and an adulterer and a murderer. You think about how much damage his sin did. You think all the the folks in the palace didn't know what was going on when Bathsheba headed up to his room? You think her friends and neighbors and family members didn't know what was going on? How about this? What do you think it does to a combat unit when the orders come from above? Here's what you're going to do. You're going to betray your comrade in arms and allow him to be murdered by your enemy. Think there wasn't some damage done to morale? David made a mess of a lot of things and a lot of people. And David was broken over his sin. And we see a picture of brokenness in Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Now let's notice here, we, we have a little bit of a list, right? This is not a list of all the stuff David's going to do and all the stuff David's going to avoid. It is not, oh God, I will, I will, I will, I will, I won't, I won't, I won't, I, 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 I. That's not what's in here. These are appeals for God to act so that David might be washed. He pleads to God, purge me, wash me, let me hear joy, hide your face from my sin, blot out my iniquities, create in me, renew a right spirit within me, cast me not away, restore to me the joy of your salvation, uphold me with a willing spirit. Brokenness is a re- an appropriate response to sin. There are times when we should be broken over our sin. And a man says to you, you know, I'm just, I'm just in this funk. I just feel terrible. Ever since I left my wife with, for the secretary, I just feel bad. Good. You should feel bad. That's an appropriate response. But brokenness is not where God leaves us. There may be times when you're curled up in the fetal position on the floor in a puddle of tears... And there, there's something appropriate about that for a time. But God does not leave us there. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. If you're familiar with the the letters to the Corinthian church, man, that church is messed up just like all of them, then and now. But they were washed. They were justified. Brokenness should lead us to a place where we realize our utter helplessness and hopelessness apart from God's grace. It should bring us to the point where we see our need for the justification of God. Justification occurs when our sins are washed away and God credits Jesus' righteousness to our account. And he declares us legally not guilty. 
So Moses confesses sin on behalf of his people, and he pleads for God's forgiveness. For it is a stiff-necked people, and part in our iniquity and our sin. Now, there's something really kind of interesting about God's forgiveness. Jesus seems to connect God's forgiveness of us with our forgiveness of others. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 14 and 15, This is Jesus talking. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. It's not complicated. It's it's pretty straightforward. This is easy to understand. It's not necessarily easy to do. Let's be honest, we just have trouble letting some stuff go. I'm sure that I'm not the only one in this room who could testify to the fact that I have been betrayed and wounded by some people. And my flesh doesn't want to let that go. And again, there's some danger here. The danger of not letting it go. God is just, perfectly just. His justice isn't like earthly justice. Nobody slips through the loophole. He's perfectly just. That means there is no such thing as any sin, no matter what, and any time that will go unpunished. Might not be punished right now, but eventually, no exceptions sin will be punished. And so there's a couple possibilities for me. Either I have been wounded and sinned against by a brother in Christ, and his sins have been covered by the blood of Jesus. His sins are washed away. Or maybe I've been sinned by someone who is condemned and still in sin, and they're going to die and go to hell one day. So here's the problem with my wanting to hang on to that and not let it go. If I refuse to let go of and forgive my, the sins of my brother in Christ, this is what I'm telling God. Ultimately, this comes back to a problem between me and God. What I'm telling God is, you know, your son's blood just doesn't impress me enough that I'm willing to just let this go. I'm going to need a little retribution first, and then you can wash away the rest of his sins. Or, I've been wounded by someone who's still in his sin and will remain in his sin and will die and go to hell. And so then what I'm communicating to God is, you know, your hell doesn't scare me so much that I'm not wanting my pound of flesh before you can have him. There's great danger in my unwillingness to forgive those who have hurt me. And it's not about between me and them. It's about between me and God. We got to let that stuff go. If you don't let that go, it's going to rob you of the joy of knowing that your sins have been washed away and you are free and you are not guilty. 
last one, a plea for adoption by God. Moses makes one last appeal here. And take us for your inheritance. Moses begs God for what? Make us your children. Make us your children. Make us your own people. Again, from A.W. Pink, this is what he says. This inheritance, like all others, has come through death, the death of God's own son. That death not only vindicated divine justice by putting away the sins of his people, but it has brought in that which shall glorify God through the endless ages of eternity. God will occupy his inheritance forever. God is perfectly faithful to his children. He will never abandon them. Psalm 94, 14, For the Lord will not abandon his people, nor will he forsake his inheritance. And we also need to note that God loves his children enough to discipline them. Those who are not his own, he will often just give over to their wickedness, right? That's God's judgment. You won't feel bad about this at all. That's a curse, not a blessing. Oftentimes I run into some young person, the same age as my children, teenagers, and they're in hot pursuit of or already engaging in some foolishness, some evil, I'm not going to engage with them the way I would if it was my children doing the same thing. They'll tell you they're in for some intensive parenting. They might even get to sit at the kitchen table and listen to a sermon or two. Spur the moment. I'm not doing that with some stranger's kid. Because they're not mine. They don't belong to me. They don't bear my name. You're his, he's going to discipline you because he loves you. He's going to spare you the judgment of, you want to chase that? There you go. Go chase it. He won't let you. Now, he does it perfectly, unlike all of our earthly fathers, unlike me. Hebrews 12, 11 For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. It should be a joy to us to know that we are thought of as children by the perfect father. Even if we didn't have, and we didn't, the perfect earthly father. So I'm pleading with you, discard, put to death all inclinations in your mind and your soul toward a man-centered theology. Worship not out of obligation or tradition, but with adoration and awe, a reverent submission, just like Moses. Plea for communion with God. And you might be unsure. I don't know where I stand. I don't know where I'm living right now. 
I don't know if it's in the desert with Israel, or it might be in the lush green valley just outside of Sodom. So cry out to him, have mercy on a sinner like me. I believe, help my unbelief. That's my plea to you if that's where you're at. Forgive those who have wounded you. Because that's how you'll be forgiven. And if you're in Christ, rejoice. You're in the family. You are the inheritance. So I'm going to finish with this word of encouragement from Romans. This is Romans chapter 8, verses 12 through 17. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Amen.